0: Namaskar, Adab, satsriyakal, and welcome to Folksy, the podcast where we roam the world through its roots of folk literature with me, Izer. If you haven't guessed by the greeting yet, this week's exploratory journey lies in the Indian subcontinent. With a gap of 12 episodes, we're back to my homeland. And once again, not through the pen of a native, but at least this time, a lot more of you would recognize our guest author. This week's tale comes from the aptly titled Indian Tales by Rudyard Kipling. Yes, that's the same Kipling of The Jungle Book fame, though you'd be surprised to know just how much this guy wrote. At a certain point, I'm not even sure that they all qualify for the tag of folk literature exactly, but the subject matter is decidedly from an ethnic explorer's mind. By the way, just as an aside, Did you know that Rudyard Kipling also wrote a sequel to The Jungle Book? Literally called The Second Jungle Book? Weird. Anyway, let's shorten the wait and get to the meat of the story. Figuratively speaking of course. There's no meat here. Maybe. Anyway, on with the story. THE FINEST STORY IN THE WORLD Or ever the nightly years were gone With the old world to the grave I was a king in Babylon And you were a Christian slave W.E. Henley His name was Charlie Mears He was the only son of his mother who was a widow And he lived in the north of London Coming into the city every day to work in a bank He was 20 years old and suffered from aspirations. I met him in a public billiard saloon, where the marker called him by his given name, and he called the marker Bullseyes. Charlie explained, a little nervously, that he had only come to the place to look on. And since looking on at games of skill is not a cheap amusement for the young, I suggested that Charlie should go back to his mother. That was our first step towards better acquaintance. He would call on me sometimes in the evenings instead of running about London with his fellow clerks. And before long, speaking of himself as a young man must, he told me of his aspirations, which were all literary. He desired to make himself an undying name chiefly through verse, though he was not above sending stories of love and death to the the drop-a-penny-in-the-slot journals. It was my fate to sit still while Charlie read me poems of many hundred lines and bulky fragments of plays that would surely shake the world. My reward was his unreserved confidence and the self-revelations and troubles of a young man are almost as holy as those of a maiden. Charlie had never fallen in love but was anxious to do so on the first opportunity. He believed in all things good and all things honourable, but at the same time was curiously careful to let me see that he knew his way about the world as befitted a bank clerk on 25 shillings a week. He rhymed dove with love and moon with June and devoutly believed that they had never so been rhymed before. The long lame gaps in his plays He filled up with hasty words of apology and description and swept on, seeing all that he intended to do so clearly that he esteemed it already done, and turned to me for applause. I fancy that his mother did not encourage his aspirations, and I know that his writing table at home was the edge of his washstand. This he told me almost at the outset of our acquaintance, when he was ravaging my bookshelves. And a little before I was implored to speak the truth as to his chances of writing something really great, you know. Maybe I encouraged him too much, for one night he called on me, his eyes flaming with excitement, and said breathlessly, Do you mind? Can you let me stay here and write all this evening? I won't interrupt you, I won't, really. There's no place for me to write and at my mother's. What's the trouble? I said, knowing well what that trouble was. I have a notion in my head that would make the most splendid story that was ever written. Do let me write it out here. It's such a notion. There was no resisting the appeal. I set him a table. He hardly thanked me, but plunged into the work at once. For half an hour, the pen scratched without stopping. Then Charlie sighed and tugged his hair. The scratching grew slower. There were more erasures and at last ceased. The finest story in the world would not come forth. It looks such awful rot now, he said mournfully. And yet it seemed so good when I was thinking about it. What's wrong? I could not dishearten him by saying the truth, so I answered... Perhaps you don't feel in the mood for writing. Yes, I do. Except when I look at this stuff. Ah! Read me what you have done, I said. He read, and it was wondrous bad. And he paused at all the specially turgid sentences, expecting a little approval. For he was proud of those sentences, as I knew he would be. It needs compression, I suggested. Cautiously I hate cutting my things down I don't think you could alter a word here without spoiling the sense It reads better aloud than when I was writing it Charlie, you are suffering from an alarming disease afflicting a numerous class Put the thing by and tackle it again in a week I want to do it at once What do you think of it? How can I judge from a half-written tale? Tell me the story as it lies in your head. Charlie told, and in the telling there was everything that his ignorance had so carefully prevented from escaping into the written word. I looked at him, and wondering whether it were possible that he did not know the originality, the power of the notion that had come in his way. It was distinctly a notion among notions. Men had been puffed up with pride by notions not a tit as excellent and practicable. But Charlie babbled on serenely, interrupting the current of pure fancy with samples of horrible sentences that he proposed to use. I heard him out to the end. It would be folly to allow his idea to remain in his own inept hands, where I could do so much with it. Not all that could be done indeed, but oh so much... What do you think? he said at last. I fancy I shall call it the story of a ship. I think the idea is pretty good. But you won't be able to handle it for ever so long. Now I... Would it be of any use to you? Would you care to take it? I should be proud, said Charlie promptly. There are few things sweeter in this world than the guileless, hot-headed, intemperate... Open admiration of a junior. Even a woman in her blindest devotion does not fall into the gate of the man she adores, tilt her bonnet to the angle at which he wears his hat, or interlard her speech with his pet oats. And Charlie did all these things. Still, it was necessary to salve my conscience before I possessed myself of Charlie's thoughts. Let's make a bargain. I'll give you a fiver for the notion, I said Charlie became a bank clerk at once Oh, that's impossible Between two pals, you know, if I may call you so And speaking as a man of the world, I couldn't Take the notion if it's any use to you I've heaps more He had None knew this better than I But they were the notions of other men Look at it as a matter of business, between men of the world, I returned. Five pounds will buy you any number of poetry books. Business is business, and you may be sure I shouldn't give that price unless... Oh, if you put it that way, said Charlie, visibly moved by the thought of the books. The bargain was clinched with an agreement that he should, at unstated intervals, come to me with all the notions that he possessed should have a table of his own to write at and unquestioned right to inflict upon me all his poems and fragments of poems. Then I said, Now tell me how you came by this idea. It came by itself, Charlie's eyes opened a little. Yes, but you told me a great deal about the hero that you must have read before somewhere. I haven't any time for reading except when you let me sit here And on Sundays, I'm on my bicycle or down the river all day. There's nothing wrong about the hero, is there? Tell me again, and I shall understand clearly. You say that your hero went pirating. How did he live? He was on the lower deck of this ship thing that I was telling you about. What sort of ship? It was the kind rode with oars. And the sea spurts through the oar holes, and the men row sitting up to their knees in water. Then there's a bench running down between the two lines of oars, and an overseer with a whip walks up and down the bench to make the men work. How do you know that? It's in the tale. There's a rope running overhead, looped to the upper deck for the overseer to catch hold of when the ship rolls. When the overseer misses the rope once and falls among the rowers, Remember, the hero laughs at him and gets licked for it. He's chained to his oar, of course, the hero. How is he chained? With an iron band around his waist fixed to the bench he sits on and a sort of handcuff on his left wrist chaining him to the oar. He's on the lower deck where the worst men are sent and the only light comes from the hatchways and through the oar holes. Can't you imagine the sunlight just squeezing through between the handle and the hole and wobbling about as the ship moves? I can, but I can't imagine you're imagining it. How could it be any other way? Now you listen to me. The long oars on the upper deck are managed by four men to each bench, the lower ones by three and the lowest of all by two. Remember, it's quite dark on the lowest deck, and all the men there go mad. When a man dies at his oar on that deck, he isn't thrown overboard, but cut up in his chains and stuffed through the oar hole in little pieces. Why? I demanded, amazed not so much at the information as the tone of command in which it was flung out. To save trouble and to frighten the others, it needs two overseers to drag a man's body up to the top deck. And if the men at the lower deck oars were left alone, of course they'd stop rowing and try to pull up the benches by all standing up together in their chains. You've a most provident imagination. Where have you been reading about galleys and galley slaves? Nowhere that I remember. I row a little when I get the chance. But perhaps, if you say so, I may have read something. He went away shortly afterward to deal with booksellers. And I wondered how a bank clerk aged 20 could put into my hands with a profligate abundance of detail, all given with absolute assurance, the story of extravagant and bloodthirsty adventure, riot, piracy and death in unnamed seas. He had led his hero a desperate dance through revolt against the overseers to command of a ship of his own, an ultimate establishment of a kingdom on an island somewhere in the sea, you know. And delighted with my paltry five pounds, had gone out to buy the notions of other men, that these might teach him how to write. I had the consolation of knowing that this notion was mine by right of purchase, and I thought that I could make something of it. When next he came to me, he was drunk. Royally drunk on many poets for the first time revealed to him. His pupils were dilated, his words tumbled over each other, and he wrapped himself in quotations. Most of all was he drunk with Longfellow. Isn't it splendid? Isn't it superb? He cried after hasty greetings. Listen to this. thou? so the helpsman answered, Know the secret of the sea? Only those who brave its dangers comprehend its mystery. By gum! Only those who brave its dangers comprehend its mystery, he repeated twenty times, walking up and down the room and forgetting me. But I can understand it too, he said to himself. I don't know how to thank you for that fiver. And this, listen... I remember the black wharves and the ships and the sea tides tossing free and the Spanish sailors with bearded lips and the beauty and mystery of the ships and the magic of the sea. I haven't braved any dangers, but I feel as if I knew all about it. You certainly seem to have a grip of the sea. Have you ever seen it? When I was a little chap, I went to Brighton once. We used to live in Coventry though before we came to London, I never saw it. When descends on the Atlantic, the gigantic storm wind of the equinox. He shook me by the shoulder to make me understand the passion that was shaking himself. When that storm comes, he continued, I think that all the oars in the ship that I was talking about get broken and the rowers have their chests smashed in by the buckling oarheads. By the way, Have you done anything with that notion of mine yet? No, I was waiting to hear more of it from you. Tell me how in the world you're so certain about the fittings of the ship? You know nothing of ships. I don't know. It's as real as anything to me until I try to write it down. I was thinking about it only last night in bed, after you had loaned me Treasure Island and I made up a whole lot of new things to go into the story. What sort of things? About the food the men ate, rotten figs and black beans and wine in a skin bag passed from bench to bench. Was the ship built so long ago as that? As what? I don't know whether it was long ago or not. It's only a notion, but sometimes it seems just as real as if it was true. Do I bother you with talking about it? Not in the least. Did you make up anything else? Yes, but it's nonsense. Charlie flushed a little. Never mind. Let's hear about it. Well, I was thinking about the story, and after a while I got out of bed and wrote down on a piece of paper the sort of stuff that men might be supposed to scratch on their oar with the edges of their handcuffs. It seemed to make the thing more lifelike It is so real to me, you know Have you the paper on you? Yes, but what's the use of showing it? It's only a lot of scratches All the same, we might have them reproduced in the book on the front page I'll attend to those details Show me what your men wrote he pulled out of his pocket a sheet of notepaper with a single line of scratches upon it, and I put this carefully away. What is it supposed to mean in English? I said. Oh, I don't know. Perhaps it means I'm beastly tired. It's great nonsense, he repeated. But all those men in the ship seem as real as people to me. Do do something to the notion soon. I should like to see it written and printed. But all you've told me would make a long book. Make it then. You've only to sit down and write it out. Give me a little time. Have you any more notions? Not just now. I'm reading all the books I've bought. They are splendid. When he had left, I looked at the sheet of notepaper with the inscription upon it. Then I took my head tenderly between both hands to make certain that it was not coming off or turning around. Then... But there seemed to be no interval between quitting my rooms and finding myself arguing with a policeman outside a door marked private in a corridor of the British Museum. All I demanded, as politely as possible, was the Greek Antiquity Man. The policeman knew nothing except the rules of the museum and it became necessary to forage through all the houses and offices inside the gates. An elderly gentleman called away from his lunch put an end to my search by holding the notepaper between finger and thumb and sniffing at it scornfully. ''What does this mean?'' Hm," said he. ''So far as I can ascertain, it is an attempt to write extremely corrupt Greek on the part,'' here he glared at me with intention,'' Of an extremely illiterate, ah, person. He read slowly from the paper. Pollock, Erkman, Tauchnitz, Henniker. Four names familiar to me. Can you tell me what the corruption is supposed to mean? The gist of the thing? I asked. I have been, many times, overcome with weariness in this particular employment. This is the meaning. He returned me the paper, and I fled without a word of thanks, explanation, or apology. I might have been excused for forgetting much. To me, of all men, had been given the chance to write the most marvellous tale in the world, nothing less than the story of a Greek galley slave as told by himself. Small wonder that his dreaming had seemed real to Charlie. The fates that are so careful to shut the doors of each successive life behind us had, in this case, been neglectful. And Charlie was looking, though that he did not know, where never man had been permitted to look with full knowledge since time began. Above all, he was absolutely ignorant of the knowledge sold to me for five pounds. And he would retain that ignorance, for bank clerks do not understand metempsychosis and a sound commercial education does not include Greek. He would supply me. Here I capered among the dumb gods of Egypt and laughed in their battered faces with material to make my tale sure, so sure that the world would hail it as an impudent and vamped fiction. And I, I alone would know that it was absolutely and literally true. I... I alone held this jewel to my hand for the cutting and polishing. Therefore, I danced again among the gods till a policeman saw me and took steps in my direction. It remained now only to encourage Charlie to talk. And here there was no difficulty. But I had forgotten those accursed books of poetry. He came to me time after time as useless as a surcharged phonograph Drunk on Byron, Shelley or Keith's Knowing now what the boy had been in his past lives And desperately anxious not to lose one word of his babble I could not hide from him my respect and interest He misconstrued both into respect for the present soul of Charlie Mears To whom life was as new as it was to Adam and interest in his readings And stretched my patience to breaking point by reciting poetry Not his own now but that of others i wished every angle i wished every english poet blotted out of the memory of mankind i blasphemed the mightiest names of song because they had drawn charlie from the path of direct narrative and would later spur him to imitate them but i choked down my impatience until the first flood of enthusiasm should have spent itself and the boy returned to his dreams "'What's the use of my telling you what I think when these chaps wrote things for the angels to read?' he growled one evening. "'Why don't you write something like theirs?' "'I don't think you're treating me quite fairly,' I said, speaking under strong restraint. "'I've given you the story,' he said shortly, replunging into Lara. "'But I want the details.' The things I make up about that damn ship that you call a galley, they're quite easy. You can just make them up yourself. Turn up the gas a little. I want to go on reading. I could have broken the gas globe over his head for his amazing stupidity. I could indeed make up things for myself. Did I only know what Charlie did not know that he knew? But since the doors were shut behind me, I could only wait his youthful pleasure and strive to keep him in good temper. One minute's want of guard might spoil a priceless revelation. Now and again he would toss his books aside. He kept them in my rooms, for his mother would have been shocked at the waste of good money had she seen them, and launched into his sea dreams. Again I cursed all the poets of England. The plastic mind of the bank clerk had been overlaid, colored, and distorted by that which he had read and the result, as delivered, was a confused tangle of other voices, most like the muttered song through a city telephone in the busiest part of the day. He talked of the galley, his own galley had he but known it, with illustrations borrowed from the bride of Abydos. He pointed the experiences of his hero with quotations from the corsair, and drew in deep and desperate moral reflections from Cain and Manfred expecting me to use them all. Only when the talk turned on Longfellow were the jarring cross-currents dumb, and I knew that Charlie was speaking the truth as he remembered it. What do you think of this? I said one evening, as soon as I understood the medium in which his memory worked best, and before he could expostulate, read him the whole of the saga of King Olaf. He listened open-mouthed, flushed, his hands drumming on the back of the sofa where he lay, till I came to the song of Einar Tamberskelver, and the verse Einar then, the arrow taking from the loosened string, answered that was Norway breaking neath thy hand, O king. He gasped with pure delight of sound. That's better than Byron, a little, I ventured. Better? Why it's true How could he have known? I went back and repeated What was that? said Olaf standing on the quarter deck Something heard I like the stranding of a shattered wreck How could he have known how the ships crash and the oars rip and go zip all along the line all along the line Why only the other night? But go back please and read the scary of shrieks again No, I'm tired. Let's talk. What happened the other night? I had an awful nightmare about that galley of ours. I dreamed I was drowned in a fight. You see, we ran alongside another ship in harbour. The water was dead still, except where our oars whipped it up. You know where I always sit in the galley? He spoke haltingly at first, under a fine English fear of being laughed at. No, that's news to me, I answered meekly, my heart beginning to beat. On the fourth oar from the bow, on the right side on the upper deck, there were four of us at that oar, all chained. I remember watching the water and trying to get my handcuffs off before the row began. Then we closed up on the other ship, and all their fighting men jumped over our bulwarks, and my bench broke and I was pinned down with the three other fellows on top of me, and the big oar jammed across our backs. Well, Charlie's eyes were alive and alight. He was looking at the wall behind my chair. I don't know how we fought. The men were trampling all over my back, and I lay low. Then our rowers on the left side, tied to their oars, you know, began to yell and backwater. I could hear the water sizzle, and we spun round like a cockchafer and I knew, lying where I was, that there was a galley coming up bow-on, to ram us on the left side. I could just lift up my head and see her sail over the bulwarks. We wanted to meet her bow-to-bow, but it was too late. We could only turn a little bit, because the galley on our right had hooked herself onto us and stopped our moving. Then, by gum, there was a crash. Our left oars began to break as the other galley, the moving one, you know, stuck her nose into them. Then the lower deck oars shot up through the deck planking, butt first, and one of them jumped clean up into the air and came down again close to my head. How was that managed? The moving galley's bow was plunking them back through their own oar holes. And I could hear the devil of a shindy in the decks below. Then her nose caught us nearly in the middle, and we tilted sideways, and the fellows in the right hand galley unhitched their hopes and ropes, unhitched their hooks and ropes, and threw things onto our upper deck. Arrows and hot pitch or something that stung. And we went up and up and up on the left side, and the right side dipped. And I twisted my head round and saw the water stand still as it topped the right bulwarks. And then it curled over and crashed down on the whole lot of us on the right side. And I felt it hit my back. And I woke. One minute, Charlie. When the sea topped the bulwarks, what did it look like? I had my reasons for asking. A man of my acquaintance had once gone down with a leaking ship in a still sea and had seen the water level pause for an instant ere it fell on the deck. It looked just like a banjo string drawn tight and it seemed to stay there for years, said Charlie. Exactly, the other man had said. It looked like a silver wire laid down along the bulwarks and I thought it was never going to break. He had paid everything except the bare life for this little valueless piece of knowledge, and I had travelled ten thousand weary miles to meet him and take his knowledge at second hand. But Charlie, the bank clerk on twenty five shillings a week, he who had never been out of sight of a London omnibus, knew it all. It was no consolation to me that once in his lives he had been forced to die for his gains. I also must have died scores of times. But behind me, because I could have used my knowledge, the doors were shut. And then, I said, trying to put away the devil of envy. The funny thing was, though in all the mess, I didn't feel a bit astonished or frightened, it seemed as if... the funny thing was, though, in all the mess, I didn't feel a bit astonished or frightened. It seemed as if I'd been in a good many fights, because I told my next man so when the row began. But that cad of an overseer on my deck wouldn't unloose our chains and give us a chance. He always said that we'd all be set free after a battle, but we never were. We never were. Charlie shook his head mournfully. What a scoundrel! I should say he was. He never gave us enough to eat. And sometimes we were so thirsty that we used to drink salt water. I can taste that salt water still. Now tell me something about the harbor where the fight was fought. I didn't dream about that. I know it was a harbor though, because we were tied up to a ring on a white wall and all the face of the stone underwater was covered with wood to prevent our ram getting chipped when the tide made us rock. That's curious. Our hero commanded the galley, didn't he? Didn't he just? He stood by the bows and shouted like a godun. He was the man who killed the overseer. But you were all drowned together, Charlie, weren't you? I can't make that fit quite, he said with a puzzled look. The galley must have gone down with all hands, and yet I fancy that the hero went on living afterward. Perhaps he climbed into the attacking ship. I wouldn't see that, of course. I was dead, you know. He shivered slightly and protested that he could remember no more. I did not press him further, but to satisfy myself that he lay in ignorance of the workings of a no. I did not press him further, but to satisfy myself that he lay in ignorance of the workings of his own mind, deliberately introduced him to Mortimer Collins' transmigration, and gave him a sketch of the plot before he opened the pages. What rot it all is! He said frankly at the end of an hour. I don't understand his nonsense about the red planet Mars and the king, and the rest of it. Chuck me the longfellow again. I handed him the book and wrote out as much as I could remember of his description of the sea fight, appealing to him from time to time for confirmation of fact or detail. He would answer without raising his eyes from the book, as assuredly as though all his knowledge lay before him on the printed page. I spoke under the normal key of my voice that the current might not be heard and I know that he was not aware of what he was saying for his thoughts were out on the sea with Longfellow. "Charlie," I asked, "when the rowers on the galleys mutinied, how did they kill their overseers?" "Tore up the branches, tore up the benches and brained them. That happened when a heavy sea was running." An overseer on the lower deck slipped from the center plank and fell among the rowers. They choked him to death against the side of the ship with their chained hands quite quietly, and it was too dark for the other overseer to see what had happened. When he asked, he was pulled down too and choked, and the lower deck fought their way up deck by deck with the pieces of the broken benches banging behind him. How they howled! And what happened after that? I don't know. The hero went away, red hair and red beard and all. That was after he had captured our galley, I think. The sound of my voice irritated him, and he motioned slightly with his left hand as a man does when interruption jars. You never told me he was red before, or that he captured your galley, I said after a discreet interval. Charlie did not raise his eyes. He was as red as a red bear, he said, abstractedly. He came from the north, they said so in the galley when he looked for rowers, Not slaves, but free men. Afterward, years and years afterward, news came from another ship or else he came back. His lips moved in silence. He was rapturously retasting some poem before him. Where had he been then? Where had he been then? I was almost whispering that the sentence might come gentle to whatever section of Charlie's brain was working on my behalf. To the beaches, the long and wonderful beaches, was the reply after a moment of silence. To Fardar Strandi? I asked tingling from head to foot. Yes, to further strandy. He pronounced the word in a new fashion. And I too saw the voice failed. Do you know what you have said? I shouted incautiously. He lifted his eyes, fully roused now. No, he snapped. I wish you'd let a chap go on reading. Hark to this. But Odar, the old sea captain, he neither paused nor stirred, till the king listened and then, once more, took up his pen and wrote down every word. And to the king of the Saxons, in witness of the truth, raising his noble head, he stretched his brown hand and said, Behold this walrus tooth! By Jove, what chaps must those have been, to go sailing all over the shop, never knowing where they'd fetch the land? Ha!' Charlie, I pleaded, if you'll only be sensible for a minute or two, I'll make our hero in our tale every inch as good as (laughs) Othair. Longfellow wrote that poem. I don't care about writing things anymore. I want to read. He was thoroughly out of tune now, and raging over my own ill luck, I left him. Conceive yourself at the door of the world's treasure house guarded by a child, "'an idle, irresponsible child playing knuckle-bones, "'on whose favour depends the gift of the key, "'and you will imagine one half my torment.' "'Till that evening, Charlie had spoken nothing "'that might not lie within the experiences of a Greek galley-slave. "'But now, or there was no virtue in books, "'he had talked of some desperate adventure of the Vikings, "'of Thorfinn Karlsefne sailing to Wineland.' Which is America in the ninth or tenth century? The battle in the harbor he had seen and his own death he had described. But this was a much more startling plunge into the past. Was it possible that he had skipped half a dozen lives and was then dimly remembering some episode of a thousand years later? It was a maddening jumble. And the worst of it was that Charlie Mears in his normal condition was the least person in the world to clear it up. I could only wait and watch. But I went to bed that night full of the wildest imaginings. There was nothing that was not possible if Charlie's detestable memory only held good. I might rewrite the saga of Thorfinn Karlsefne as it had never been written before might tell the story of the first discovery of America, myself the discoverer. But I was entirely at Charlie's mercy. And so long as there was a three and six penny bone volume within his reach, Charlie would not tell. I dared not curse him openly. I hardly dared jog his memory, for I was dealing with the experiences of a thousand years ago, told through the mouth of a boy of today. And a boy of today is affected by every change of tone and gust of opinion so that he lies even when he desires to speak the truth. I saw no more of him for nearly a week. When next I met him, it was in Grace Church Street with a billhook chained to his waist. Business took him over London Bridge and I accompanied him. He was very full of the importance of that book and magnified it. As we passed over the Thames, we paused to look at the steamer unloading great slabs of white and brown marble. A barge drifted under the steamer's stern, and a lonely cow in that barge bellowed. Charlie's face changed from the face of the bank clerk to that of an unknown, and, though he would not have believed this, a much shrewder man. He flung out his arm across the parapet of the bridge and, laughing very loudly, said, when they heard our bulls bellow, the scrollings ran away. I waited only for an instant, but the barge and the cow had disappeared under the bows of the steamer before I answered. Charlie, what do you suppose are scrollings? Never heard of them before. They sound like a new kind of seagull. What a chap you are for asking questions, he replied. I have to go to the cashier of the omnibus company yonder. Will you wait for me and we can lunch somewhat together? I have a notion for a poem. No thanks, I'm off. You're sure you know nothing about scrollings? Not unless he's been entered for the Liverpool handicap. He nodded and disappeared in the crowd. Now, it is written in the saga of Eric the Red or that of Thorfinn Karlsefne that 900 years ago, when Karlsefne's galleys came to Leif's booths, which Leif had erected in the unknown land called Markland, which may or may not have been Rhode Island, the Scrollings, and the lord he knows who may or may not have been, came to trade with the Vikings and ran away because they were frightened at the bellowing of the cattle which Thorfinn had brought with him in the ships. But what in the world could a Greek slave know of that affair? I wandered up and down among the streets, trying to unravel the mystery. And the more I considered it, the more baffling it grew. One thing only remained certain, and that certainty took my breath for the moment. If I came to full knowledge of anything at all, it would not be one life of the soul in Charlie Muir's body, but half a dozen, Half a dozen several and separate existences spent on blue water in the mourning of the world. Then I walked around the situation. Obviously, if I used my knowledge, I should stand alone and unapproachable until all men were as wise as myself. That would be something, but man-like, I was ungrateful. It seemed bitterly unfair that Charlie's memory should fail me when I needed it the most. Great powers above, I looked up at them through the fog smoke. Did the lords of life and death know what this meant to me? Nothing less than eternal fame of the best kind that comes from one and is shared by one alone. I would be content, remembering Clive, I stood astounded at my own moderation, with the mere right to tell one story, to work out one little contribution to the light literature of the day. If Charlie was permitted full recollection for one hour, for 60 short minutes of existences that had extended over a thousand years, I would forego all profit and honor from all that I should make of his speech. I would take no share in the commotion that would follow throughout the particular corner of the earth that calls itself the world. The thing should be put forth anonymously. Nay, I would make other men believe that they had written it. They would hire bull-hided self-advertising Englishmen to bellow it abroad. Preachers would found a fresh conduct of life upon it, swearing that it was new and that they had lifted the fear of death from all mankind. Every Orientalist in Europe would patronize it discursively with Sanskrit and Pali texts. Terrible women would invent unclean variants of the men's belief for the elevation of their sisters. Churches and religions would fight war over it. Between the hailing and restarting of an omnibus, I foresaw the scuffles that would arise amongst half a dozen denominations, all professing the doctrine of the true metempsychosis as applied to the world and the new era and saw, too, the respectable English newspapers shying like frightened kine over the beautiful simplicity of the tale. The mind leaped forward a hundred, two hundred, a thousand years. I saw with sorrow that men would mutilate and garble the story, that rival creeds would turn it upside down till, at last, the Western world, which clings to the dread of death more closely than the hope of life, Would set it aside as an interesting superstition and stampede after some faith so long forgotten that it seemed altogether new. Upon this, I changed the terms of the bargain that I would make with the lords of life and death. Only let me know, let me write the story with sure knowledge that I wrote the truth. The story with sure knowledge that I wrote the truth and I would burn the manuscript as a solemn sacrifice. Five minutes after the last line was written, I would destroy it all. But I must be allowed to write it with absolute certainty. There was no answer. The flaming colors of an aquarium poster caught my eye, and I wondered whether it would be wise or prudent to lure Charlie into the hands of the professional mesmerist and whether, if he were under his power, he would speak of his past lives. If he did, and if people believed him. But Charlie would be frightened and flustered, or made conceited by the interviews. In either case, he would begin to lie through fear or vanity. He was safest in my own hands. They are very funny fools, your English, said a voice at my elbow. And turning around, I recognized a casual acquaintance, a young Bengali law student called Grish Chander, whose father had sent him to England to become civilized. The old man was a retired native official and on an income of £5 a month, contrived to allow his son £200 a year and the run of his teeth in a city where he could pretend to be the cadet of a royal house and tell stories of the brutal Indian bureaucrats who ground the faces of the poor. Grish Chandar was a young, fat, full-bodied Bengali dressed with scrupulous care in a frock coat, tall hat, light trousers and tan gloves. But I had known him in the days where the brutal Indian government paid for his university education and he contributed cheap sedition to Sachi Durpan and intrigued with the wives of his schoolmates. That is very funny and very foolish, he said, nodding at the poster. I am going down to the Northbrook club. Will you come too? I walked with him for some time. You are not well, he said. What is there in your mind? You do not talk. Grishchandar... You have been too well educated to believe in a God, haven't you? Oh, yes, here. But when I go home, I must conciliate popular superstition and make ceremonies of purification and my women will anoint idols and hang up Tulsi and feast the purohit, and take you back into caste again and make a good khatri of you again, you advanced social freethinker. And you'll eat desi food and like it all, from the smell in the courtyard to the mustard oil over you. I shall very much like it, said Grishchandar unguardedly. Once a Hindu, always a Hindu. But I like to know what the English think they know. I'll tell you something that one Englishman knows. It's an old tale to you. I began to tell the story of Charlie in English. But Grishchandar put a question in the vernacular and the history went forward naturally in the tongue best suited for its telling. After all, it could never have been told in English. Grishchandar heard me, nodding from time to time, and then came up to my rooms when I finished the tale. Beshak, he said philosophically. Lekin darwaza band hai. Without doubt, but the door is shut. I have heard of this remembering of previous existences among my people. It is of course an old tale with us But to happen to an Englishman A cow fed malech? An outcast By Jove This is most peculiar Outcast yourself Garish Chandar. You eat cow beef every day Let's think the thing over The boy remembers his incarnations Does he know that? Said Garish Chandar quietly Swinging his legs as he sat on my table He was speaking in English now. He does not know anything. Would I speak to you if he did? Go on. There is no going on at all. If you tell that to your friends, they will say you are mad and put it in the papers. Suppose now you prosecute for libel. Let's leave that out of the question entirely. Is there any chance of his being made to speak? There is a chance. Oh, ah, yes. But if he spoke, it would mean that all this world would end now. Instanto, fall down on your head. These things are not allowed, you know. As I said, the door is shut. Not a ghost of a chance? How can there be? You are a Christian and it is forbidden to eat in your books of the tree of life. Or else you would never die. How shall you all fear death if you all know what your friend does not know that he knows? I am afraid to be kicked, but I am not afraid to die, because I know what I know. You are not afraid to be kicked, but you are afraid to die. If you were not, by God, you English would be all over the shop in an hour upsetting the balances of power and making commotions. It would not be good. But no fear. He will remember a little and a little less. And he will call it dreams. Then he will forget altogether. When I passed my first arts examination in Calcutta, that was all in the cram book on Wordsworth. Trailing clouds of glory, you know. This seems to be an exception to the rule. There are no exceptions to rule. Some are not so hard looking as others but they are all the same when you touch. If this friend of yours said so and so and so and so, indicating that he remembered all his lost lives or one piece of a lost life, he would not be in the bank another hour. He would be what you called sack because he was mad and they would send him to an asylum for lunatics. You can see that, my friend. Of course I can, but I wasn't thinking of him. His name need never appear in the story. Ah, I see. That story will never be written. You can try. I am going to. For your own credit and for the sake of money, of course. No, for the sake of writing the story. On my honor, that will be all. Even then, there is no chance. You cannot play with the gods. It is a very pretty story now. As they say, let it go on that. I mean at that. Be quick. He will not last long. How do you mean? What I say, he has never so far thought about a woman. Hasn't he though? I remembered some of Charlie's confidences. I mean, no woman has thought about him. When that comes... Bus? hogya, All up? I know. There are millions of women here. Housemates, for instance. I winced at the thought of my story being ruined by a housemaid. And yet nothing was more probable. Girish Chandar grinned. Yes, also pretty girls. Cousins of his house. And perhaps not of his house. One kiss that he gives back again... And remembers, will cure all this nonsense. Or else... Or else what? Remember, he does not know that he knows. I know that. Or else, if nothing happens, he will become immersed in the trade and the financial speculations like the rest. It must be so. You can see that it must be so. But the woman will come first, I think. There was a rap at the door and Charlie charged in impetuously. He had been released from office and by the look in his eyes, I could see that he had come over for a long talk, most probably with poems in his pockets. Charlie's poems were very wearing. But sometimes they led him to talk about the galley. Grease Chander looked at him keenly for a minute. I beg your pardon, Charlie said uneasily. I didn't know you had anyone with you. I'm going, said Greesh Chander. He drew me into the lobby as he departed. That is your man, he said quickly. I tell you, he will never speak all you wish. That is rot, bosh. But he would be most good to mate to see things. Suppose now we pretend that it was only play. I had never seen Greesh Chander so excited and pour the ink pool into his hand. Eh? What do you think? I tell you that he could see anything that a man could see. Let me get the ink and the camphor. He is a seer, and he will tell us many, many things. He may be all you say, but I am not going to trust him to your gods and devils. It will not hurt him. He will only feel a little stupid and dull when he wakes up. You have seen boys look into the ink pool before. That is the reason why I am not going to see it anymore. You'd better go, Girish Chandar. He went, declaring far down the staircase that it was throwing away my only chance of looking into the future. This left me unmoved, for I was concerned for the past and no peering of hypnotized boys into mirrors and ink pools will help me to do that. But I recognized Girish Chandra's point of view and sympathized with it. What a big black brood that was, said Charlie when I returned to him. Well, look here, I've just done a poem. Did it instead of playing dominoes after lunch. May I read it? Let me read it to myself. But then you missed the proper expression. Besides, you always make my things sound as if the rhymes were all wrong. Read it aloud then. You're like the rest of them. Charlie mouthed me his poem, and it was not much worse than the average of his verses. He had been reading his books faithfully, but he was not pleased when I told him that I preferred my Longfellow undiluted with Charlie. Then we began to go through the MS line by line, Charlie parrying every objection and correction with. Yes, that may be better, but you don't catch what I'm driving at. Charles was, in one way at least, very like one kind of poet. There was a pencil scroll at the back of the paper and... What's that? I said. Oh, that's not poetry at all. It's some rot I wrote last night before I went to bed and it was too much bother to hunt for rhymes. So I made it a sort of blank verse instead. Here is Charlie's blank verse. We pulled for you when the wind was against us and the sails were low. Will you never let us go? We ate bread and onions when you took towns or ran aboard quickly when you were beaten back by the foe. The captains walked up and down the deck in fair weather singing songs, but we were below We fainted with our chins on the oars, and you did not see that we were idle. For we still, for we still swung to and fro. Will you never let us go? The salt made the oar bandies like shark skin. Our knees were cut to the bone with salt cracks. Our hair was stuck to our foreheads, and our lips were cut to our gums. And you whipped us because we could not row. Will you never let us go? But in a little time, we shall run out of the portholes as the water runs along the oar blade. And though you tell the others to row after us, you will never catch us till you catch the oar thresh and tie up the winds in the belly of the sail. Oho, will you never let us go? Mm-hmm. What's oar thresh, Charlie? The water washed up by the oars. That's the sort of song they might sing in the galley, you know. Aren't you ever going to finish that story and give me some of the profits? It depends on yourself. If you had only told me more about your hero in the first instance, it might have been finished by now. You're so hazy in your notions. I only want to give you the general notion of it. The knocking about from place to place and the fighting and all that. Can't you fill in the rest yourself? Make the hero save a girl on a pirate galley and marry her or do something. You're a really helpful collaborator. I suppose the hero went through some few adventures before he married. Well then, make him a very artful card. A low sort of man. A sort of political man who went about making treaties and breaking them. A black-haired chap who hid behind the mast when the fighting began. But you said the other day that he was red haired. I couldn't have. Make him black haired, of course. You have no imagination. Seeing that I had just discovered the entire principles upon which the half memory falsely called imagination is based, I felt entitled to laugh. But forbore for the sake of the tale. You're right. You're the man with imagination. A black-haired chap in a decked ship, I said. No, an open ship, like a big boat. This was maddening. Your ship has been built and designed, closed and decked in. You said so yourself, I protested. No, no, not that ship. That was open or half-decked because... By Jove, you're right. You made me think of the hero as a red-haired chap Of course, if he were red The ship would be an open one with painted sails Surely I thought he would remember now That he had served in two galleys at least In a three-decked Greek one Under the black-haired political man And again in a Viking's open sea serpent Under the man red as a red bear Who went to Markland The devil prompted me to speak Why, of course, Charlie, said I. I don't know. Are you making fun of me? The current was broken for the time being. I took up a notebook and pretended to make many entries in it. It's a pleasure to work with an imaginative chap like yourself, I said after a pause. The way that you've brought out the character of the hero is simply wonderful. Do you think so? He answered with a pleased flush. I often tell myself that there's more in me than than people think. There's an enormous amount in you. Then won't you let me send an essay on the ways of bank clerks to tidbits and get that guinea prize? That wasn't exactly what I meant, old fellow. Perhaps it would be a little bit better to... Perhaps it would be better to wait a little and go ahead with the galley story. Ah, but I shan't get the credit of that. Tidbits would publish my name and address if I win. What are you grinning at? They would. I know it. Suppose you go for a walk. I want to look through my notes about our story. Now this reprehensible youth who left me a little hurt and put back might for aught he or I knew have been one of the crew of the Argo had been certainly slave or comrade to Thorfinn Karlsefne. Therefore, he was deeply interested in Guinea competitions. Remembering what Grish Chandar had said, I laughed aloud. The lords of life and death would never allow Charlie Mears to speak with full knowledge of his pasts. And I must even and I must even piece out what he had told me with my own poor inventions while Charlie wrote of the ways of bank clerks. I got together and placed on one file all my notes, and the net result was not cheering. I read them a second time. There was nothing that might not have been compiled at second hand from other people's books, except perhaps the story of the fight in the harbour. The adventures of a viking had been written many times before. The history of a Greek galley slave was no new thing. And though I wrote both, who could challenge or confirm the accuracy of my details? I might as well tell a tale of two thousand years hence. The lords of life and death were as cunning as Girish Chandar had hinted. They would allow nothing to escape that might trouble or make easy the minds of men. Though I was convinced of this, yet I could not leave the tale alone. Exaltation followed reaction, not once, but twenty times in the next few weeks. My moods varied with the March sunlight and flying clouds. By night, or in the beauty of a spring morning, I perceived that I could write that tale and shift continents thereby. In the wet, windy afternoons, I saw that the tale might indeed be written but would be nothing more than a faked, false-varnished, sham-rusted piece of warder street work at the end. Then I blessed Charlie in many ways, though it was no fault of his. He seemed to be busy with prize competitions, and I saw less and less of him as the weeks went by and the earth cracked and grew ripe to spring, and the buds swelled in their sheets. He did not care to read or talk of what he had read. And there was a new ring of self-assertion in his voice I hardly cared to remind him of the galley when we met But Charlie alluded to it on every occasion Always as a story from which money was to be made I think I deserve 25%, don't I at least? He said with beautiful frankness I supplied all the ideas, didn't I? This greediness for Silver was a new side in his nature I assumed that it had been developed in the city where Charlie was picking up the curious nasal drawl of the underbred city man. When the thing's done, we'll talk about it. I can't make anything of it at the present. Red-haired or black-haired hero are equally difficult. He was sitting by the fire staring at the red coals. I can't understand what you find so difficult. It's all as clear as mud to me. A jet of gas puffed out between the bars as he replied, took light and whistled softly. Suppose we take the red-haired hero's adventures first, from the time that he came south to my galley and captured it and sailed to the beaches. I knew better now than to interrupt Charlie. I was out of reach of pen and paper and dared not move to get them lest I should break the current. The gas jet puffed and whinnied. Charlie's voice dropped almost to a whisper, and he told a tale of the sailing of an open galley to further Strandy, of sunsets on the open sea, seen under the curve of the one sail evening after evening, when the galley's peak was notched into the centre of the sinking disk, and we sailed by that for we had no other guide, quoth Charlie. He spoke of a landing on an island, and explorations in its woods, where the crew killed three men whom they found asleep under the pines. Their ghosts, Charlie said, followed the galley, swimming and choking in the water. And the crew cast lots and threw one of their number overboard as a sacrifice to the strange gods whom they had offended. Then they ate seaweed when their provisions failed, and their legs swelled, and their leader, the red-haired man, killed two rowers who mutinied. And after a year spent among the woods, they set sail for their own country. And a wind that never failed carried them back so safely that they all slept at night. This and much more, Charlie told. Sometimes the voice felt so low that I could not catch the words, though every nerve was on the strain. He spoke of their leader, the red-haired man, as a pagan speaks of his god. For it was he who cheered them and slew them impartially as he thought best for their needs. And it was he who steered them for three days among floating ice. Each floe crowded with strange beasts that tried to sail with us, said Charlie. And we beat them back with the handles of the oars. The gas jet went out. A burned coal gave way. And the fire settled down with a tiny crash to the bottom of the grate Charlie ceased speaking And I said no word By Jove, he said at last, shaking his head I've been staring at the fire till I'm dizzy What was I going to say? Something about the galley I remember now It's 25% of the profits, isn't it? It's anything you like when I've done the tale. I wanted to be sure of that. I must go now. I've... I've an appointment. And... and he left me. Had my eyes not been held, I might have known that broken muttering over the fire was the swan song of Charlie Mears. But I thought it the prelude to fuller revelation. At last and at last I could cheat the lords of life and death. When next Charlie came to me, I received him with rapture. He was nervous and embarrassed, but his eyes were very full of light and his lips a little parted. I've done a poem, he said, and then quickly, it's the best I've ever done. Read it. He thrust it into my hand and retreated to the window. I groaned inwardly. It would be the work of half an hour to criticise that is to say, praise, the poem sufficiently to please Charlie. Then I had good reason to groan. For Charlie, discarding his favorite centipede meters, had launched into shorter and choppier verse, and verse with a motive at the back of it. This is what I read. The day is most fair, the cheery wind halloos behind the hill, where he bends the wood as seemeth good, and the sapling to his will. Riot, O wind, there is that in my blood That would not have thee still. She gave me herself, O earth, O sky, Grey sea, she is mine alone. Let the sullen boulders hear my cry And rejoice, though they be but stone. Mine, I have won her, O good brown earth, Make merry, tis hard on spring, make merry. My love is doubly worth all worship your fields can bring. Let the hind that tills you feel my mirth at the early harrowing. Yes, it's the early harrowing past a doubt, I said with a dread at my heart. Charlie smiled, but did not answer. Red cloud of the sunset, tell it abroad. I am Victor, greet me, O son. Dominant master and absolute lord, over the soul of one. Well, said Charlie, looking over my shoulder. I thought it far from well, and very evil indeed, when he silently laid a photograph on the paper. The photograph of a girl with a curly head and a foolish, slack mouth. Isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? He whispered, pink to the tips of his ears, Wrapped in the rosy mystery of first love. I didn't know. I didn't think. It came like a thunderclap. Yes, it comes like a thunderclap. Are you very happy, Charlie? My God, she, she loves me. He sat down, repeating the last words to himself. I looked at the hairless face, the narrow shoulders already bowed by desk work, and wondered when, where and how he had loved in his past lives. What will your mother say? I asked cheerfully. I don't care a damn what she says. At twenty, the things for which one does not care a damn should properly be many. But one must not include mothers in the list. I told him this gently and he described her even as Adam must have described to the newly named beasts the glory and tenderness and beauty of Eve. Incidentally, I learned that she was a tobacconist's assistant with a weakness for pretty dress and had told him four or five times already that she had never been kissed by a man before. Charlie spoke on and on and on While I, separated from him by thousands of years, was considering the beginning of things. Now I understood why the lords of life and death shut the doors so carefully behind us. It is that we may not remember our first wooings. Were it not so, our world would be without inhabitants in a hundred years. Now, about that galley story, I said... Still more cheerfully, in a pause in the rush of the speech, Charlie looked up as though he had been hit. The galley? What galley? Good heavens, don't joke, man. This is serious. You don't know how serious it is. Gideesh Chander was right. Charlie had tasted the love of woman that kills remembrance. And the finest story in the world would never be written. And that was today's tale. I must say I've seen and heard a lot of opinions about Kipling's work. The Jungle Book was one of my first ever full-length reads as a kid and I remember being somewhat confused by the portrayal of Indians in the story. I did reread it as a somewhat older kid as well and most of the confusion was cleared away with what I'd gotten to know of Indian history from that specific period of time. For everyone not in the know, Mr. Kipling is the youngest recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature to date. He was also nominated for the British Poet Laureateship as well as a knighthood several times but declined them. That doesn't really ring of a glory hound exactly and yet several British authors who came after him have derided his work as that of a jingo imperial. Or basically someone who is so decidedly British that it's a subliminal diss every time he talks about any other nation. I haven't really read enough of his work at this point to comment conclusively. But what do you think? Does his attitude as a writer come off as condescending in this story? I'd love to hear your views so hit me up on Instagram on @foxy_podcast. These days, I've taken a real shine to our old friend Riddy Man and this episode is no different. The musical selection is his track Drifting which you can find easily on YouTube. And now we come to the most anticipated section of all, the preview to next week's tale. Who will it be? That wonder of authorial intent whose tales we read together here on Folksea. Which place will we visit? Yeah, anticlimactically we'll be revisiting Mr. Kipling's work again in Just So Tales. Yep, that's the name of an actual book. Just So Tales. As always, all the works we cover here on Folksea are available for free download and online reading on Gutenberg.org. That'll be all for this week's episode. This is your host with the rap post Izer signing off.